listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn tonight in our Bibles again to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the verse number 12 and following. Revelation 1 and verse 12 and following. Let's read from the verse number 9 and get some setting for the words that then follow. Revelation 1 verse number 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are here, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which I sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he turns around to look toward the voice that he heard. And turning around, verse number 12, he sees seven golden candlesticks. We know from the verse at the end of the chapter, the verse number 20, that these seven candlesticks are the seven churches. The candlestick here refers to a lampstand, an oil-filled lampstand, the same word being used in Matthew chapter 5 regarding believers as the light of the world. He's seeing a picture, a picture that represents the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, the church that is to shine forth in the gospel of Christ, even language have in Philippians chapter 2. And as he looks at these candlesticks, he sees one in the midst of the churches, one like unto the Son of Man, verse number 13. Verse 17 and verse 18 makes it clear that the one in view here is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
There's no question in our minds that he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we know that John is seeing Christ in his glory. Not the Christ wrapped in swaddling bands and laid in a manger, but the ascended glorified Christ in the triumph of the victory of the cross. He is the ascended and glorified Lord. The churches here, the seven churches that are mentioned, and of course being representative of churches uh, more broadly, these seven churches are being shown through John the unseen reality. I think of the words of Peter. Peter says, Whom having not seen, we love. Though we see not Christ, we love him. We hear John is given a sight. He's given a sight of Christ, a sight that he shares to encourage the churches and in the mercy of God to encourage us tonight. So, what is really going on in the world? What is happening across the globe? Well, Christ is walking among the churches. That is the unseen reality. John is being given a glimpse of that which is unseen. Peter says, though we see him not, yet John is given a glimpse of what is unseen, and that is that Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the candlesticks. And so we're given a picture here, an image of our Savior. And first of all, we see the wonder of the Savior, the wonder of the Savior. This is a sight that is beyond painting. People have tried. They've tried to represent this in some sort of artistic fashion, and it feels miserably. You just cannot put this into picture formats. This is not about so much what the Lord looks like as to what the Lord is like. Who is the Lord? Well, we see in verse number 17 that when John is met with this vision... And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Here we're seeing the response of the child of God in the presence of God. It is encouraging that this is not like the Gethsemane scene when the Lord says, I am, and they fall backwards away from the Lord. Here John falls at his feet but he is like Daniel of old, Daniel 10. Therefore I was left alone and saw the great vision, and there remained no strength in me. It's another time that a child of God is in the presence of God and is overwhelmed by awe, the wonder of the Savior, the awe that the Savior brings forth. Note, first of all, the sight. Verse number 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. I mentioned in perhaps the opening a message in this, uh, this book that what you see so often in the book of Revelation are pictures that are drawn from the Old Testament. Listen to the words of Daniel 7, verse number 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Here's the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, referred to in Daniel, of course, is the God himself, God himself. It is the Lord God in the majesty of purity that is the Ancient of Days. And yet, in this vision... In verse number 13 of Revelation 1, he says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. 
His head and his hairs are white like, like wool. And if you turn back now to Daniel chapter 7, you will, you'll see for yourself here the significance of this, of this reference. Daniel chapter 7, the verse number 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Here we see... A glimpse of Christ again. He is the one like the Son of Man in verse number 13. Remember what happens in the Lord's trial? They question the Lord. They quiz the Lord as to who he is. He says, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest rent his clothes, saying he has spoken blasphemy. Too often... When we read the New Testament, we think of the Son of God as a reference to the Lord's deity and the Son of Man as a reference to his humanity. But the Son of Man reference in the Gospel is drawn from Daniel chapter 7, and clearly it was understood in Jewish thought that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is equal with the Ancient of Days. So here in Daniel 7, there is a distinction. The Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man are distinct. The Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days. But when you get to Revelation, you find that this one like the Son of Man who died and lives again, Jesus Christ, he is also described in language that relates to the Ancient of Days. It's a very clear demonstration of the Bible's teaching that the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, though distinct in Trinity, are one in essence, one in majesty. The one like the Son of Man is co-eternal, co-equal, equal in glory and majesty with Ancient of Days. And so the image here pictures divine attributes. You see the Ancient of Days, you see the holiness of the white, you see the justice. Here in Revelation chapter 1, his eyes, there's a flame of fire. That corresponds to the throne mentioned for the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. So the eyes that see, they manifest the justice of God. You have the omniscience of God, his eyes again mentioned here. And yet you have the mercy of God. You have the encouraging reference down in the verse number 16, his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. We're just drawing out pictures here. But what you see and what John beheld when he turned around was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's seeing the majesty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the glorified God-man. The one who took to himself true humanity, who died and rose again, now has all the glory and the splendor of deity. He left glory. He assumes glory as he rises and ascends to the right hand of God. And John is met with the glory of Christ. And he falls as if dead. One man says this, You are not a Christian. Unless you have experienced a sense of humiliation before the glory of the Lord. God's word tells us we have not come into the presence of Christ 
until we have fallen on our faces before him. You can clap your hands and sing at the top of your voice, but if you've never felt your unworthiness and sin in the presence of Christ, you've never seen him at all. There is great truth in that. We have lessened the glory of Christ in so much of our religious experience. Hymnology has become very trite and familiar. The pictures that are often drawn of Christ uh, do so in such a way that he appears as weak, barely worthy of our respect. But here John sees a glorified Christ, and the only proper response is awe. All properly understood. And so the true Christian, they understand, they see Christ as shepherd. They love the pictures of Christ's compassion, the one who says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. We, we love that image of Christ, but at the same time, we cannot hold those pictures without also giving due consideration to the glory of Christ. As seen by John in Revelation chapter 1. That's something of the wonder of the Savior. Secondly, note the word of the Savior. His voice is mentioned. We know that from verse number 10. A great voice as of a trumpet. Verse 15 then. His voice as the sound of many waters. I can't read that without thinking of the majesty of Niagara Falls. And the din that comes. You stand beside those falls and the, the waters, the many waters. And the noise of waters as they hit the various rocks and the structures around it, it, it resounds with, with a tremendous noise. Here is the power of Christ's voice. His mouth is mentioned then in verse number 16. His mouth out of which went the sharp two-edged sword. The word of the Savior here is a word that brings comfort to John. We have that there. He's told as he falls, as if dead, the Lord says to him from this very mouth, fear not. Fear not. That's only possible if the reason to fear is removed. If Christ is his enemy, then the one who has a sharp two-edged sword at his mouth will indeed bring great trembling. But John was the one, of course, who lay on the bosom of Christ. He is not separated from Christ, but one with Christ, reconciled to Christ, at peace with Christ. And therefore, he can hear these words, fear not, and they, they mean what they mean. We are no less close to Christ than John is. John's closeness came, yes, in a, in a very physical uh, fashion, but John's closeness to Christ is based upon justification. John is no more justified than you or I are. Justified freely by his grace. John's justification is based upon Christ's righteousness, and so is mine. And therefore the Lord says to all of us tonight, fear not, the word brings comfort. The word brings confidence. And he says... I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. He, here's the confidence. Christ saying he has the keys. In the sense here, he has the authority over hell and death. 
It is likely the reference to hell here, using the word Hades, is a reference to the place the souls go after death, even the grave. And so the idea here is that Christ, the power to deliver people from the power of the grave and the power of death, grave, death has no sting, has no power because of Christ. He is the one who can release people from the power of hell and of death. What confidence that brings a church that is suffering under the, under the weight of the mission and under the persecution that he brings, yet Christ has the keys in his hand to deliver souls from hell and for death. The word brings comfort, it brings confidence, it brings correction. The sharp two-edged sword is mentioned here. It's mentioned also in chapter 2 and the verse number 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ comes and walks in the churches with the sword of his mouth, coming to correct his church, and to say to the church at times, Repent. Repent of your coldness. Repent of your compromise. The word, quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, divides pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12, the word that brings correction. And so here you see the word of Christ. Comfort to those who can hear those words. Confidence to a suffering, struggling church. And correction to a church marked by sin, compromise and coldness. Don't you want that in the word of Christ? How often we pray in the Lord's day, Lord, give a word, just a word that's fitly spoken. A word in season for each individual. That when we come together and Christ is manifest in the word of God, we want comfort and confidence and correction to come in the word. This is Christ in the midst of the churches. You need to pray these things. Pray over these things that Christ would indeed fulfill his work in our midst. The word of the Savior. Which leads in the third place to the work of the Savior. The work is messianic work. We know we see Christ here as the glorified Messiah. Verse number 13, The one like unto the Son of Man is clothed with a garment down to the ground, and girt about the paps, the chest, with a golden girdle. Different ideas as to what's in view here. I think the most likely idea, particularly consistent with the use of the Old Testament revelation, is that here we see Christ as the high priest. This is a reference to the priestly, the high priestly garment. Christ coming, the Son of Man, clothed as a priest. Also serving as a prophet. I've already spoken about his mouth and the voice. The sword that brings comfort and correction and confidence. And yet we see him here as king, of course. His kingship is seen in his glory. This is the Son of Man with all messianic authority. And yet, when you see the Messiah work, here I must look to his hand. For Messiah works in the churches as he has in his hand seven stars. The seven stars that are explained for us in verse number 20 as the angels of the seven churches. It's generally understood 
Now, the word angel here refers to the messenger and refers to those who teach the word in the churches. The messenger, the angel. Now, undoubtedly, the word angel uh, at various times in the word of God, both Old and New Testament, refers to supernatural beings. But at other times, it can refer to human messengers, such as prophets and preachers. James Durham says this, The angels are ministering spirits, sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation, but they do not have the everlasting gospel to preach. This treasure is put in earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God. Likewise, ministers are called angels because they are God's messengers, entrusted with a high and heavenly employment. And so Christ works in the church by sovereignly sending and strengthening his ministers. The strength of the star, if you like, comes from the hand in which it sits. The stars that are thrust out into the harvest field are thrust out with the power of the right hand of Christ and his sovereign will, sending men here and there to minister the gospel of Christ. Though the church is marred by persecution, yet Christ is caring for the church by bringing angels to the church that they would minister the word of Christ on his behalf. That is the high calling of the pastoral ministry. The high calling of those called to pioneer and plant churches in the mission fields. Because it is the task, the task of the gospel minister to serve in Christ's stead. To serve as a priest telling the congregation to be reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. To serve as the king to rule and have authority in the word of God. And to be the prophet that announces the word of God. These are things that you often wish someone else would preach. I have no deluge or grandeur. We are earthen vessels, clay, pots. But there is a tremendous dignity and authority that comes when you're sent by Christ to minister the word of God. And in light of such, it is our duty to be submissive to the word, provided that the man of God preaches just the word. We are not to be under the lordship of someone who wants to exalt their own opinions, exert their own influence, such as not becoming a star in the hand of Christ. But those who are faithful, those who are faithful in ministering the word of God, they are indeed stars in Christ's hands. And Christ does his work through his angels. We think of vacant churches. Christ has stars in his hand. Pray for Christ to throw those stars out into Orlando or Cloverdale or wherever else it may be. Pray for the sovereign Christ in his sovereign timing and will to thrust laborers into those harvest fields. And for those involved in missions, the same thing is true. And so we see the work, the work of Christ in his church. And then finally, please note with me the walk of the Savior. The walk of the Savior. The walk is mentioned in verse number 1 of chapter 2. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He walks on feet as brass, 
back in the earlier part of chapter 1, verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Christ's feet are feet that have been purified. Now here you've got to think carefully and use words carefully. When I speak of Christ's purified feet in the furnace, I'm not suggesting by even a second that he had any sin. There was no impurities that required purification. No sin. But it is referring to one who is made perfect in his sufferings. Now Christ in his sufferings is the one who walks amongst us having been in the furnace of affliction, touched with a feeling of our infirmities. The one clothed with a high priestly garment has feet that were burned in a furnace. Christ suffered in this sin-cursed world, or this sin-cursed world, touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He is our sympathizing Savior, though glorified. And in his glory, he still bears the marks of his sufferings. And so he walks amongst us. And as our sympathetic high priest, he walks amongst us and sees us in our struggles. He sees a struggling church. He sees the church in its successes. He sees us in our sins and in our sufferings. And he supports us in those things. He comes alongside and he speaks into our lives. There are seven letters to follow. The one walking among the candlesticks is going to speak to those candlesticks through the angels. He's going to speak a word to the church. These are pictures, poetic pictures, wonderful pictures. But they are pictures that portray the reality. This is not imagination. This is the Lord's way of communicating to us the reality that Christ walks in the midst of his church. That's awesome, fearful, and comforting all at the same time. He sees our coldness and our compromise, but he also sees our conviction and our commitment. And he is with us in our struggles and supports us day by day. May we live our church life by faith. May we guard our mouths in Christ's presence. And may we glorify his name as he looks upon us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.